and ro- welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, October 10th, free from Toby Hooper. Hello everyone, welcome back, the new, uh, welcome back for the new episode. Today we're going to be talking about three of the lesser known movies from uh, Toby Hooper. Some of you might know him best as either the director of... Um, Know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and later Poltergeist, uh, Life Force, The Invaders from Mars remake. But today I'm going to be talking about three uh, particular films of his because I feel like they can be sort of lumped together based on the thematic material. Um, also because I feel like, for me personally, Hooper is one of the more underappreciated directors in the horror genre especially for people like me who like horror classics. But, um, so we've got the Texas Chainsaw Part 2 we're going to get to eventually, but the first two we're going to be talking about were actually um, united in having the distinction of being on the Video Nasties band list in the UK during the 80s. Which, weirdly enough, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was not on. But, you know, it's often theorized that these two were on there solely because they were made by the same guy. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre has such a reputation. I mean, even to this day, there's a lot of people who think that movie's, like, way gorier than it actually is. But, first up on the docket we have today is called Eaten Alive, or at least that's what the North American title is. Like a lot of low-budget horror movies of the time, it had like several different names. Um, So it was known as Eaten Alive in the U.S. Um, Also saw the titles of Starlight Slaughter, Horror Hotel. Um, When it was on the band list in the U.K., it was known as Death Trap. This was the first film Hooper made during, uh, well, post-Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, Now, this one was shot entirely on a soundstage in Hollywood, which, you know, stark contrast to Texas Chainsaw, but I feel like it actually works for this case because it's very, it makes it very claustrophobic. The fact that nothing is like natural lighting means it's kind of a very surreal feel to the whole movie. And honestly, the fact that it's so claustrophobic is kind of impressive, given the fact that there is a fair amount of the movie that's, like, at least partially outdoors. Essentially, the plot is very, very loosely based off the uh, serial killer Joe Ball. Uh, He was known as the Butcher of Elmendorf. He was known as the South Texas Bluebeard or the Alligator Man. Take your pick. It's one of those weird epithets. Don't don't even get me started on the cool nicknames that people give to, like, serial killers. I mean, you know, calling someone, like, I don't know, Jack the Ripper or South Texas Bluebeard. I mean, I know it's not the reason that a lot of people do these, but, you know, maybe if we stopped giving them cool nicknames, it might, you know, trim down the occurrence level. But anyway... So, 
This guy, Joe Ball, owned a bar in Elmendorf, Texas in the 1930s, and he had a live alligator as an attraction, because you could do that shit back then. Um, he was found later to have killed multiple women, and while it was never proven, supposedly he fed them to the alligator to get rid of the evidence. That's more or less what... Um, That's more or less what the main character Judd does here. Um, actually, interesting little side note, one of the characters here is a sheriff played by Stuart Whitman. Uh, not really a big-name actor unless you're into like really obscure horror movies these days, but he was actually trying out for, I think it was Arbogast, uh, Martin Balsam's role in Psycho, he actually tried out for it, I think. And this is essentially a sleazier, demented version of Psycho in terms of the plot structure. We follow as there's this prostitute who's objected from her brothel after a dispute with one of the patrons. She's really distraught, and she just kind of like wanders around before coming to the Starlight Hotel. Um, it's basically one of those big old, you know, like, southern gothic-style mansions. And it's just located near the edge of the bayou. There she runs into this character, this guy Judd, who's the innkeeper, basically. Um, you know, he's a, he's a menacing-looking dude. He's got, like, really bad stubble. He's walking with a limp. Um, he's got, like, glasses that are, like, broken in the center. And he's just got, like, this big jump... He's just got, like, this beige jumpsuit on. Um, kind of like the one Michael Myers was wearing. Just imagine it's, like, tan. But it's the best way I can put it. And he's played by character Neville Brand. Um, like I said, this was banned in the UK for a while. And it was heavily cut. But it was approved in movie theaters, which was why a lot of people were confused as to why this was even on the list to begin with. Um, like a lot of the movies that are up there, it actually was relatively uncut in terms of violent content, but it was missing a lot of you know, important scenes narratively to the point where it kind of became something of an incoherent mess, which might have been why it got on the list. It's because if you don't cut the violence out, but you cut out important character stuff, it just looks a lot more like senseless violence. And one of these scenes, which was important because it kind of showed an overall point of the movie, was just how, you know, self-destructive people can get when things aren't going well. Is that William Finley's character, Roy, he, his wife, and his daughter, and, I th and their dog, are all staying at the motel. And Roy just gets so fed up with his wife that he tries to strangle her. And a fair amount of critics and other viewers who have actually seen this, apparently, have said that it highlights some of the themes of the films. That being that, you know, traditional societal roles kind of pressures people into act in ways that can drive them to, ironically, the kind of behavior that a lot of society deems to be you know, deviant and undesirable. You know, he's sick of 
his wife's attitude. He feels like he's being henpecked, basically. So eventually he just decides to, like, shut her up. It's kind of meant to show that, you know, Judd's a lunatic, but anyone can become him if, you know, given enough pressure and having their psyche worked on enough. And we'll come back to this later when we get into the themes, because like I said, all three of these can kind of be grouped together in terms of thematic material. Next up is the fun house where again, this was another of Hooper's video nasties entries and it's unusual for a nasty one of the video nasties because it was actually released by a major studio and had a decently sized budget where most of the others were low budget indie films. Uh, you know, sadly this one didn't perform too well and Toby Hooper because he was making the funhouse actually turned down the director's chair for ET. So Spielberg decided he would just do it himself. Um, Again, there's some debate as to how exactly this ended up on the list. And some have suggested that it's probably getting confused with another film called The Last House on Dead End Street, because that was also known as The Fun House. Uh, That one didn't end up on the list, but if more people had seen it, it probably would have just because... I guess just because it had a lot of slaughterhouse footage. And, you know, movies got on that list for a lot less. I would like to say that Funhouse is, like, what a lot of people probably expected when they were going into Texas Chainsaw Part 2. We'll get into that later. But it has this sort of, like, killer family, and they're based in a traveling carnival. And the fun house in the title is uh, referring to a carnival fun house. You know, one of those things where, like, it's like a haunted house mixed with, like, a very easygoing roller coaster, basically. You're just on a little set of rails and just riding a little pod going along it. And stuff just uh, jumps out at you and scares you. And when they're sneaking around after hours going off the public areas, they witness this one member of the family. Uh, It's this deformed albino known in the credits just as the Barker. He gets anxious and embarrassed after, like, hiring a prostitute and kills her. And, you know, they see this happen and the family realizes that there's someone lurking about in it. And what gets the rest of the conflict rolling is that infling one of them actually swiped the cash box. Now, I think I mentioned this back in the first of the month when we did the proto-slashers, but what makes a lot of Toby Hooper's horror movies interesting is that usually the, the killer, like the slasher in it, is usually the center of interest or if not the center of sympathy. Like, you know, Judd's an absolute maniac, but you kind of get the feeling, you know, he's missing a leg. It's hinted at that he's a veteran. 
So he's probably got like untreated PTSD that's just sort of like gone untreated or he's had to like repress because of societal expectations. He's been living on his own for a while, I'm guessing. Here in the funhouse, the Barker is like heavily deformed, has difficulty speaking, uh, is probably kind of reverted to sort of like mental infancy if he ever got, and that's assuming he ever got out of it. Probably just because, you know, he's been abused and neglected so long, he's probably been treated like garbage. And you compare this to, like, the victims, and a lot of the times they're just completely uncharacterized. Normally I'd say that's the opposite of what you should be doing for a slasher movie, but Hooper makes it work. And on top of that, a lot of his movies are kind of interesting to watch they kind of lull you into this sort of sort of detached state because the plot structure is so loose it's actually kind of the same thing that I like about a lot of Rob Zombie's movies uh, especially like House of a Thousand Corpses or Devil's Rejects where there's the premise and then things just kind of happen and you know it does so in a way where it doesn't feel pointless but that's the way it goes Anyway, finally, we're going into Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Now, this was a follow-up to the classic, and it's a lot campier and far more comedic than the original movie, which, you know, a lot of people, both audiences and critics at the time, didn't like. Uh, the Sawyer family from the first movie is brought back, and they've taken up residence in an abandoned amusement park. Uh, part of the humor is, you know, included in Leatherface's relative Drayton, or the cook, who, depending on the continuity, is either his older brother or his father. You know, I mean, you know, it's Texas, it could be both. <laughs> but he's entered into a local chili contest, and he's included, what do you call it, some of his special stock. And everyone loves it. And they don't know they're eating people, basically. So again, that whole thing about, you know, the line between normal people and the deranged. It's also fairly entertaining to be hearing that the distributor Canon Films, like I saw a documentary on their whole story at one point, and the distributor was upset with Hooper because he went ahead and made a sort of black comedy when they were expecting a more, you know, straight-laced horror movie. Uh, a lot of the general public and critics felt similar, even if the movie was still, you know, financially successful. My question is, what the hell did they expect? I mean, go look up the poster for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. It's just the Breakfast Club poster with the Sawyer family filling in the posters. And I mean, this was like a year after Breakfast Club, so it's not like the reference would have gone over anyone's heads. Uh, a lot of the set pieces... All the set piece murders are really good. Um, the lighting is kind of disorienting at points because, again, it's taking place in an abandoned amusement park. You got the sheriff who's trying to track them down, who's kind of just sort of hopped up on, you know, evangelical fervor. And he's played wonderfully by Dennis Hopper. Uh, some of you might know him from, among other things, Blue Velvet. You got Bill Mosley, who would later be in Devil's Rejects. You've got 
uh, cameo from the horror host Joe Bob Briggs. He's got a bunch of shows on Shudder right now. Uh, back in the day, it was on uh, Monster Vision. So, you know, I can attest to a lot of the later sequels and remakes for Texas Chainsaw, but this one is definitely worth a watch. And again, I'm pretty sure this one is on Shudder if you, at least if you live in North America. So yeah, getting into the outro and the themes here, like I said, it's... I looked into this because I watched that Video Nasties documentary and one of the critics was talking about this, but essentially one thing that unites all three of these movies and some other of Toby Hooper's movies is that there's a sort of derision of the idea of the American dream, you know, that whole classic image, and there's a linking of the violence in it to, you know, the pioneer past here in the U.S. I mean, all three of the vill- all three of these movies, the villains are in some ways, small business owners. And Judd, much like his actor Neville Brand, is also a veteran. So it's possible that Hooper is hinting at the idea that his sort of psychosis might be, you know, him dealing with a lot of shit from the war and not getting the help he needed. Because, I mean, this did come out, like, in the aftermath of, like, the Vietnam War ending. It was just a couple years later, actually. Um, I think I mentioned again in the Proto-Slashers episode that um, someone in the Sawyer family in Texas Chainsaw 2, he goes on this little rant about like how hard it is to function as a small business owner, what with all the taxes and the red tape. And I mean, he's not really talking to anyone, I don't think, but I remember he basically, you know, he defends what he's doing on the idea of, you know, you know, the idea of, like, private property, free enterprise, just standard capitalist practice, that kind of stuff. And this also kind of ties back into, you know, the theme in the first movie, that they're sort of, you know, victims of industrialization. You know, it used to be that they all worked at a slaughterhouse, and then they got replaced because the owners wanted to make more money, so they replaced them with machines. Didn't matter how loyal of workers they were. Didn't matter how good they were at their job. They got replaced anyway. Because, you know, it's cheaper to just maintain a machine a lot of the times. So, yeah, that's basically uh, Eaten Alive, The Fun House, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I... Don't know for certain about Texas Chainsaw 2. I think it has a Shout Factory release uh, on Blu-ray. I know the Funhouse does for Shout Factory. Eaten Alive, meanwhile, has a great release from Arrow Video US. So if you are like me and want to you know, support physical media, go ahead and see if you can find copies for those. Um, I-, I would recommend trying to find them secondhand uh, just because it's a little cheaper. But so anyway, that's it for today. I hope everyone has a good night. Stay safe. We will be back tomorrow talking about, we're going to go a little old fashioned. We're going to have some creature features, including a number of cash ins on the success of Spielberg's Jaws. 
So I hope everyone has a good night. Stay safe. I'm signing off for the night. Goodbye.